are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. and welcome to episode 18 of Footprints on Our Hearts. And today I have a rather special episode for you. I don't have an interview guest. This is a a solo show, actually two solo shows, as you may have noticed when you downloaded this into your podcast app, because today's episodes are going out the day after Skye's birthday. And if you're new to the podcast, then Skye is my daughter who was stillborn last year in 2019. So I wanted to, I guess, share both her story and also my experiences of grief and loss and learning to live again over the past year. Um, And I hope you find it useful. I hope you enjoy it. Um, Yeah, I hope it's comforting and, and maybe gives a bit of hope, even though there's a lot of sorrow in it. So I'm actually recording this introduction um, further in advance than usual, um, the weekend before it goes out. And I think one thing I'm already realising is that for me, a birthday and this kind of, I guess, this anniversary and this mark of time passing isn't just one day because of the circumstances that um, that my loss occurred in. So for me, I think there's all these events leading up to it. So there's the day that we think Sky died. There's the day we found out that she was dead and there was no heartbeat. There was the day I went into hospital to, to be induced and give birth to her. And then finally, there is her birthday. So it's not just this one day or one point of time. And I'm not sure if that makes it better or worse or easier or harder, but from where I'm sitting now, I I do kind of hope that perhaps because I've got this lead up to it and all these different milestones to get past, that when we get to her birthday, that I can celebrate that with joy as well as sorrow, having perhaps got some of the worst of the heartache out of the way. We will see. So, as I mentioned, this episode is split into two parts um, because I'm apparently incapable of being as concise as my guests on this show. So, part one um, covers Sky's story from the beginning. So, my pregnancy, um, finding out she died, that kind of in between time between finding out she died and going back into hospital to give birth, and then, you know, her birth and the kind of aftermath of that. Um, Part two covers my first year of life after loss, and I talk about grief, depression, the impact on friendships and relationships, as well as Sky's legacy. And I finish this episode with a letter to myself, um, and one I wrote a few weeks ago to, to the me of a year ago, and I hope that perhaps this might give a bit of hope to those of you listening who are recently bereaved and perhaps a bit of perspective from one year in. Also, just before we dive into the episode, I want to give you a quick reminder about the giveaway I'm running to celebrate Sky's birthday. So I'm giving away a copy of These Precious Little People, kindly donated by Frankie Bunker, um, a personalised candle, which you can have personalised with the name or message of your choice, um, a gorgeous bookmark with um, a wonderful quote. I can't remember off the top of my head and I don't want to misquote it, but it's really beautiful. And there might be another surprise or two in there from me. So the giveaway runs until next Wednesday, the 3rd of June, and I'll announce the winner on next week's podcast episode. Details of how to enter are in the show notes and also on my Instagram page. So I think that's about it for an intro. Um I have to say I'm I'm pretty nervous about about putting this episode out. Um I wasn't quite sure how deep to go when telling my story. Um 
And there's still quite a lot of pain in there, which I'm sure you will pick up when you listen to it. But I kind of felt like I owed it to you all to be honest and talk about perhaps some of the things which I found most difficult and challenging about my experience in case there are other people out there who have similar feelings um, and are struggling with that or haven't found anyone who has kind of experienced the same thing. Um, So anyway, please don't judge me too harshly for anything. I'm sure you won't because we've all been in the same boat, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Anyway, let me know what you think of it. Part one, from the beginning, pregnancy and loss. As with most good stories, I'm going to start at the beginning because it seems a pretty good place to start. I met my husband when I had just turned 30 and we had quite a long distance relationship for a few years before we ended up moving in together, then getting engaged, then going through the whole wedding preparations, etc, etc. So by the time we got around to thinking about children, I was already starting to feel that ticking clock. And my friends take great delight in telling me that I'm not old. But still, when all your friends pretty much who are going to have children already have children, you start to feel like perhaps you're getting a little bit left behind. And I think when we started thinking about trying to get pregnant, I was quite aware that it may not be straightforward. Um, I've had friends who've had fertility problems um, or for whom it's taken quite a while to conceive. So in my mind, I kind of had it at the back of my mind that we needed to start now because what if it took us a year? What if it took us two years? And in the end on that ground, my concerns were, were unfounded. We were incredibly lucky and got pregnant really quickly. And that's definitely something that I am grateful for. And I don't take for granted knowing of so many people's challenges to even get past that first hurdle. And by and large, my pregnancy with Sky was pretty straightforward. I mean, I had some of the usual pregnancy symptoms, nausea, insomnia. I had terrible acne, honestly, I think worse than even when I was a teenager, um, which I don't think most people get. And it actually got worse in the second trimester. So <laughs> that whole thing about turning into a glowing beauty in your middle months, yeah, that that didn't really happen. But in the grand scheme of things, I got off fairly lightly, um, particularly, I think, in terms of morning sickness. And everything seemed to be going smoothly. We had our first scan. I was quite adamant that we weren't going to tell anyone we were pregnant until after we'd had that scan. I think, again, I've I've always been perhaps a glass half empty person. And I've always had this kind of protective mechanism that if I think the worst of something, then actually the reverse will happen and good things will come true, which there's probably some big, deep psychological meaning behind that. But anyway, <laughs> um, we won't go too deep into that. Um, so I think I, as well as being quite aware of you know infertility, I was also quite aware that you know many women suffered from miscarriages um, and perhaps lost their babies quite early on. So for that reason, we didn't even tell our parents we were pregnant until after we had had that first scan. And that's the kind of point at which it becomes real, doesn't it? You, you see this little this little baby kind of wiggling away on the screen and you're like, wow, that's, that's inside my belly. <laughs> and at some point it's going to come out. <laughs> so that was pretty exciting. Our parents were both super excited. So Sky was the first grandchild on both sides of the family. And yeah, I think, I think both sets of grandparents were, were really excited and our, and our wider families. And everything carried on okay after that. Our second scan at 20 weeks went well. Um, No issues shown. Everything, you know, they said to be normal within normal range. All the measurements were fine. 
I felt like that scan went quite quickly and she was quite abrupt about it, but I still trusted that if there were any issues, they would have been picked up at that stage. And I think that was maybe the point where we started thinking, okay, we we need to start thinking about having a baby now. <laughs> and we weren't we weren't one of these couples who kind of went out and and bought everything and got the nursery ready and had the you know the baby named and everything bought of them bought for them by the time the 20 week scan. Um I think partly just because we're probably not that organized, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and I think also those whilst I enjoyed being pregnant and I enjoyed that aspect of my life I the rest of my life at that time in from a work perspective was quite difficult um I I'm self-employed and I split my time between freelance writing and um my author business so writing books I was involved in a big box set project with a lot of other authors at that time for for pretty much the whole six months I was pregnant um we were trying to hit this bestseller list and it turned into an incredibly stressful experience stressful both in terms of the work hours that I was doing and and also just some of the drama that went on I am a very conflict averse person so um, that kind of thing affects me and I was working long hour days like I was doing 50 60 70 hour weeks sometime and you know if you know when you're you're pregnant and you're trying to do that that is that is not good (laughs) particularly when you have insomnia and things as well so I was definitely overworking um and there were various things going on that I was getting pretty stressed about. And that all really came to a head in May, which was, what says is May 2019, which was when we did end up hitting the bestseller list by the skin of our teeth. And I think by that point, I I just, I got to burnout. I was, I was just completely burnout and feeling pretty broken, worrying about things like maternity pay, how I was going to get my you know next book written before our baby arrived, and all these things which in retrospect, you know, I really shouldn't have been worrying about because as we all know, there are more important things at life. But it's kind of easy to look back now and say that, whereas obviously at the time you're kind of stuck into the grind and, and your mind's really focused on that. At the end of May, I had my 25-week midwife appointment and we listened to baby's heartbeat. We hadn't found out whether it's boy or girl at that point, so it was still baby. Um, And everything was fine. And I kind of walked home and it was a sunny day and I felt really happy. I just felt really content on that day. Um, And then that week progressed. And by this point, I had started to feel kicks and movements from the baby but she she was never really a big mover and a big kicker and I don't know if that's just because of how she was or was because of what happened to her and the fact that you know she was struggling in there but it had been it had taken quite a while before I started feeling movements and although I was getting kicking every day it didn't seem to be that regular, or at least I hadn't established a fixed pattern of that by by that point. However, I got towards the end of the week, and I think the, the Friday, and I suddenly realised that I hadn't really felt her kicking that much. And I think because of everything I'd had going on, I wasn't quite sure when she had last kicked. You know, my mind was on other things. So I remember thinking about it, thinking, okay, well we'll give it tonight and then see how I feel in the morning. So went to bed that night, got up Saturday morning, mentioned it to my husband. Um, Neither of us were particularly worried. Um, I think particularly because, you know, I hadn't had really strong, consistent movements. Um, But I was like, okay, so I hit Google, Googled how to get your baby to move and then did everything it suggested. So icy water, coffee, lying down, doing star jumps, pretty much everything and still I didn't I didn't really have there there wasn't anything really significant enough there you know I didn't get any kicking from that so I decided to phone the maternity assessment unit as per the instructions and 
the lady on the other end was really reassuring. She's like, I'm sure everything's okay, but, you know, come in and we'll have a listen to the heartbeat just for your reassurance. And honestly, I, that's all I thought it was. Um, I even said to my husband, look, you know, there's no point you coming, you can stay at home. And he insisted on coming. And in retrospect, I'm very glad he did. So we trundled off to the hospital, nice sunny day, went into the maternity assessment unit um, and waited around for a bit before there was a nurse uh, midwife free. And then she took us through there's a kind of an open ward there with a couple, maybe three or four beds. And she got us to sit, told me to sit down on one, pull the curtains around and got the Doppler machine. And she listened for a while and she kept listening. And finally she said, oh, I'm just, I'm just struggling to find this heartbeat a bit. I think baby might be in a slightly awkward position. Um, so I'm just going to get a scan machine just so we can reassure you and have a good look and make sure everything's okay. But I just need to wait till the doctor's free to do that. Do you want to come into this room? At this point, I don't know if it was just me being in denial or possibly the fact that actually at my midwife appointment earlier in the week, there'd been a student midwife and she had also struggled to find the heartbeat. So she'd handed the Doppler over to the, the midwife who'd come along and go, oh yeah, baby's just a bit low, just, you know, just a bit awkward to get the heartbeat. And so part of me maybe thought that that was the case. I think maybe I had that start of a nagging doubt, but I yeah, neither I nor my husband, I don't think were aware or could accept the fact that there was anything severely wrong. So we got shown into this room, which is the smallest hospital room I have ever been in, literally the whole, it was tiny, it was hot, all it pretty much had room for was a bed, and that was pretty much it, and a a sort of chair shoved against the wall to the side. And we waited in there for a while, and it was really uncomfortable, you know, really hot, really stifling and close. And then eventually a doctor came in, and he was still quite relaxed, midwife was still quite relaxed. And he had one of the portable scanners and he started scanning and he kept on scanning. And I think the longer it went before he said something, it slowly began to sink in, sink in that something was wrong. And I remember wanting to ask the question and not being able to, because I just, I just didn't want to voice to voice that that thought inside me. I didn't want to, to voice it as if voicing it would somehow make it real. But after a while, I asked him, are you, you know, have you found the heartbeat? And he said, oh, I'm just struggling a bit. And I said, is the baby moving? And he said, not really. That's why I'm struggling. And I think it was then that the room began to close in around me a bit and all the heat started to get to me and I think he had probably known for perhaps the last few minutes what he had to tell us and he was also trying to find the courage to find those words because let's face it no doctor wants to tell a parent that their baby is dead but I'd kind of put him on the spot so (laughs) he'd run out of time (laughs) so he turned to us and he said, you know, the same words that, you know, many of you will have heard, I'm I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. And even though I'd had this bit of dread inside me and I'd kind of known for the past few minutes what what the outcome of this was, I think that was the point at which it hit. And I just let out this scream and I really... It's a noise that I don't think you can make voluntarily. I think it's just that animal cry of a mother who's lost her child and it just erupts from your lips and and comes out. And I remember the doctor was holding my arm. I was sat bolt upright and my husband Sam was holding me and I think he was already crying. And I remember the next thing I said was, it's my fault. I was so stressed. This is my fault. And I know now, looking back, that that's, you know, that's, that's not the case. And 
even though I was hugely stressed at that point, I don't think that was the main reason why Sky died. But it is still quite hard for me. And it was quite hard in the months after that to separate those two things in my mind, my work from Sky's death. And the doctor explained to us that he needed to get a consultant to give a second opinion. And they left us there in the room. And the consultant came back, she confirmed it. And for some reason, it was really important for me to know what gender our baby was. Because from that point, up until that point, I they'd been a kind of a hypothetical being, I guess. I mean, I know they were a person because they were growing inside me, but they weren't so real. But now we knew that our baby was dead. Suddenly, it was we shouldn't be referring to the baby as it. It should be a he or a she. It should have a name. And she told me that she couldn't tell me. Uh, we would have to wait for the birth to find out. And they they kind of explained to us what was going to happen. Um, I think they assumed a lot of knowledge. I mean, I was still like, so so what happens now? And I had to ask that question, what what do we do now? And they're like, oh, well, you'll give birth to her. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> so So what does that mean? You know, because this was my first pregnancy, you know, I hadn't even started thinking about birth yet. You know, I'd heard of the term induction. I knew people who, you know, who had had to be induced, but I didn't even know what that meant. So they explained that this was on the Saturday, that we'd take this pill, we'd come back in on the Monday. There was a nice bereavement suite, which we'd be able to, to go to, and we'd be taken there, and, you know, we'd be separate from the labour ward and the birth the birth centre. Um, and, you know, then they'd start the induction probably early in the morning, and it could take a while, we didn't know. And, and then I'd give birth to the baby, and that was it. We weren't given any other information, any leaflets or anything, which I think was perhaps just an oversight on the day. And they said we could stay there as long as we liked, but what did we have to stay there in that room for? So we decided to go home and we had walked into that hospital as, you know, a couple, as two people. And we walked out of that hospital, two very different people. Part two, the in-between time. That time in between finding out your baby has died and then being born is a surreal few days. On the one hand, you kind of want it all to be over. You want this nightmare to have ended. But on the other hand, you kind of want to keep them inside you as long as possible because once they're born, once they're outside your body, you really have to face up to the fact that they've died, that you're not going to bring home that baby you've longed for for so long. And I think one of the things that I found during those two days that I got quite obsessed with the fact that I didn't know the exact moment when she died and I felt as her mother I should have known I mean surely you're supposed to have this connection with your baby you should know somehow I should have known the moment of her death and I have I mean I I do think that well I don't know the exact moment of death I do think that I know the day that she did die based on when I last felt her kick and also that that day I had felt kind of so depressed, almost unreasonably so. And I feel like perhaps that was my body telling me that something was wrong. And I kept coming back to to these movements. And I think one thing I hadn't really been made aware of, I guess, during my midwife appointments or from what I'd read and in magazines or online and you know it was a first time mum I'd done my fair share of kind of reading up on pregnancy stuff but I wasn't aware that you could feel a baby moving in your womb after they had died and 
I think because there's all this emphasis, particularly early on in pregnancy, that, you know, a lot of the time the first feelings you get of your baby moving are bubbles and pops and that type of thing. And then the kicks come later. And that was what I'd had. You know, I, I felt this bubbling and this kind of sense of something moving inside me. And then I had had a few kicks. But I think for whatever reason, you know, I hadn't established by that stage, even though she was, you know, 25 and a half weeks, I hadn't established really a regular pattern of kicks. And I now think that that was probably a problem that that, you know, I hadn't had that regular pattern of kicks because she hadn't been well. And because I was a first time mum, I didn't know that because I had nothing to compare that to. And so when she hadn't kicked for, you know, perhaps a day or so, you know, I wasn't unduly worried because I was still feeling her move. Like I still felt her moving in my womb. And gosh, I remember thinking, well, if I'd known that, perhaps I would have gone in sooner. And, you know, I know it wouldn't have made a difference now, looking back, I know it wouldn't have made a difference, but I still felt particularly at that time that I should have known that my baby had died or that something was seriously wrong with her. So we came back from the hospital and the first thing we did was go out for a walk. I am an outdoor person and the outdoors is my safe place. And I remember we went on this quite a long walk and, you know, my hips were feeling pretty achy by that point. Um, And on that walk, we decided what we were going to call baby if there were a girl. We, I'm not sure we ever actually finalised a name for a boy. Perhaps we both knew secretly that that we were going to have a girl. Um, And we talked about some, some other things. And but mainly we just walked in silence. And I remember not wanting to come home from that walk. I just wanted to keep walking and walking, you know, and not have to go home and face reality. And then when we did get back, we we well had to face probably what was one of the hardest parts, maybe of the whole experience for me, and that was telling our parents what had happened. So up until this point, we hadn't we hadn't told anyone. I think we were still in shock, really. And I remember calling my parents and just hearing their cries of horror, really. And it was really hard. It was, you know, the hardest phone call I've ever had to make. And I, I hope I don't have to make another one like it. And, you know, when we finally hung up, I just... I just felt so much guilt over breaking so many hearts. And after that, over, well, I guess the next 24 hours, I spent a lot of time on the internet, desperately searching for information. As I mentioned in the last segment, we we weren't given any information on leaving the hospital. And I had no idea what to expect. Um, I was literally Googling what is stillbirth, what happens when your baby is stillborn. And I found surprisingly little information or information of the kind of detail that I wanted. And at that stage, I think because we hadn't got any leaflets, I wasn't even aware of SAMS or the SAMS forum where there were other people I could have asked those kind of questions. Things like, you know, what happens when you're induced is it the same being induced at six months as it is at full-term labour? How long is it going to take? How painful is it going to be? What happens when my baby is born? You know, I until I got home or until I Googled, I didn't even know that because Sky was being born at 26 weeks, she would be classed as a stillbirth and not a miscarriage. I hadn't even been told that. And the implications that come with that in terms of having to organise a funeral. Um, Gosh, all those things that you just don't think about until you end up in this situation. I had no real idea what I needed to take to the hospital. What I certainly wasn't aware of any kind of memory making or anything like that. And... I think the one thing that saved me was the Tommy's website. And, you know, I will be forever grateful for Tommy's for the comprehensiveness of the information on their website. Um, And that that filled in some of the gaps 
I also searched on forums for information, you know, those I could get access to, to try and find, you know, other people's stories and experiences. So just so I had some idea of what to expect and felt a little bit more in control of the situation. On a Sunday, we went on a shopping trip because, you know, I was 26 weeks, I didn't have a hospital bag. And I looked down this list of things that, you know, a friend had suggested that I pack in my hospital bag and immediately crossed off all the ones relating to a baby. But I remember quite clearly, uh, I remember my friend telling me that, you know, you needed to get a couple of those button down 90s, you know, the old granny 90s from Marks and Spencers, because you needed to be able to have access for the baby to be able to, you know, have skin to skin contact and breastfeed. And I remember standing in the nightwear section of, I think it was Marks and Spencers, possibly Debenhams, I don't know, and looking at these 90s and thinking, I don't need a button down nighty because I'm not going to be breastfeeding my baby. I didn't even think about skin to skin contact at that point. I just thought I don't need a button down nighty. So I bought a couple of nighties that, um, you know, were long and baggy enough to kind of do the job. Then after that, we headed to, well, I think we headed to Marks and Spencer's Food because we were like, well, we need to take some snacks into hospital. And you know what? We might as well have the nice stuff rather than heading to Tesco's. <laughs> so we had no idea what um, what we'd want to eat, whether we'd be fed or not. Um, so we just bought loads of different snacks for things. And then we went home and my parents came, did come over on the Sunday night. So they'd be there just to be in the house in case we needed anything while we were in hospital. Um, we went to bed. I don't think either of us slept very much. We set an alarm for the morning um, just in case, you know, we happened to sleep in um, because we didn't want to miss that phone call that I had to make, the appointment with the hospital that that appointment that neither of us wanted to have to go to. Part three, Sky's birth. On Monday morning at 9am, as instructed, I rang the labour ward. Um, and this wasn't just any Monday. It was a bank holiday Monday, which we which ended up affecting our experience quite a lot. Um, I'll preface this by saying that all the midwives who cared for us and looked after us during our time in hospital were lovely and really helpful and really supportive. Unfortunately, we hit the hospital at a really bad time. I think they were understaffed um, and, yeah, really, really busy. So, after being pushed around from department to department for a few minutes and having to explain about three times that I was coming in for a stillbirth and not a normal routine induction, they eventually said, oh, we'll come in at midday and we'll get you sorted. So we sat around for a few more hours, waited, and we went at about 12, half 12, about lunchtime, not really knowing what to expect other than there was this bereavement suite which we'd have to ourselves um, and we'd probably start start the induction process. I think by then I'd done enough research to know that you kind of had these pills or something at four hourly intervals, and that it you know it could be quick or it could take a long time. When we got in, unfortunately, we were told that the bereavement suite wasn't available, which, to be honest, hadn't even crossed my mind. I think I rather naively thought that we kind of booked it. <laughs> what do you mean it's not available? And and obviously that's not the case. And if there's someone already in there that, you know, they can't just push them to leave. So we were shown to a different room uh, on the main labour ward, kind of at the far end. Um, and we were left there for a while. Occasionally people come in to take measurements, put a cannula in my hand and we were left there. Then they moved us to another room because they thought we'd be more comfortable in that. But we said, actually, no, we we prefer to be in the, the first one. The first one had ensuite facilities. So we had we had a toilet, essentially, um, a toilet and a sink. So a small bathroom, whereas the room they tried to move us to, whilst being a bigger room, um, I would have had to walk down the corridor past the rooms of other labouring women just to go to the toilet. 
I was not prepared to accept that. (laughs) So they moved us back to the room we were first in and we waited a bit longer. And finally, at I think about half past five that afternoon, um, I got the first sort of dose of the medicine you have. So bearing in mind, I'd been expecting to get this at about nine o'clock in the morning and going through these contractions during the day, I was now getting it in the evening. And what that meant was that my labor, such as it was, went on overnight, which for me, that lack of sleep and the lack of food was really, really hard physically. So we they gave us something to eat at about six o'clock, I think, one of those microwave meals. And then we settled down and we tried, you know, we tried to get some sleep. And I think I maybe dozed for perhaps an hour before I was woken up by the screams of a laboring woman either in the room next door or further down the corridor quite quite loud and I think when you're kind of nervous about giving birth anyway and what's to come that was yeah I think that just kind of took my anxiety up a notch by which point that stopped me sleeping until probably the earliest hours of the morning and by that point my constructions were so strong that I was not going to get any rest um, and because I was so tired, I, I struggled to eat. And as anyone who knows me in real life and knows, when Alison doesn't get food and doesn't get sleep, she is not a good person <laughs> to be around. Um, and my blood sugar drops and I, I really struggle. I had had, you know, I think when we discussed birth, you know, when I discussed it with my husband, we'd floated the possibility of having a water birth and we'd looked around the birth center and found it quite nice and we actually asked the midwives if that was a possibility because there was a pool in the room we were in and they looked a bit surprised but eventually came back with the answer yes you could and I remember my husband asking me at probably about three o'clock in the morning if if I wanted to get into this bath and honestly at that point All I wanted to do was lie on this bed and go to sleep and have this pain leave me. (laughs) But obviously that wasn't going to happen until baby came out. So things carried on. Um, My construction started getting a lot stronger to the point where I was like, I I feel like I need some pain relief. I'd had some paracetamol, which clearly did nothing. (laughs) Um, And I think about five, half past five, the midwife gave me a bit of codeine and then which also felt like it did nothing and then I was like well can I go can I have some gas and air and she seemed a bit reluctant to let me have that I think perhaps because she was thought I was quite early on in the labor and I actually got to the point where I was finding it so hard that I asked her how far along am I because I needed I needed an end post. I needed a goal of, you know, okay, you're six centimeters dilated or whatever. And, you know, that's a good sign. It's not going to go on for much longer. Um, And I remember her examining me and saying, yeah, you're two and a half centimeters. And I just wanted to swear at her. I was like, what? How could I only be two and a half centimeters when I'm in this much pain? And honestly, at that point, I just didn't know if I could do it. As it turns out, things went very quickly after that. And literally, I think maybe an hour, maybe 45 minutes after she told me I was two and a half centimetres dilated, Sky was born. So I think overall, obviously, I was, you know, very lucky in terms of not having a complicated or drawn out, particularly labour. She was born at 7.15 in the morning And the first thing I asked was, is it a boy or a girl? And I kind of knew she was going to be a girl all along. But yeah, it was just having that confirmation. And I remember the midwife took her away. Well, they presumably took her away. I kind of got settled on the bed, I guess. And she handed her back to me in a blanket. And... I remember feeling like I'd heard all these experiences of birth and how you feel 
after you give birth and how, you know, the moment you your baby gets put in your arms, they, you know, they're the heart of your world and you're filled with this overwhelming sense of love and amazement. And I remember thinking, that is how I'm supposed to feel right now. Like I know, I know that she's I know that she's dead and not alive, and that doesn't matter. But I should still be feeling this overwhelming sense of love. So why is it? that I just feel numb. And I've wondered that a lot since, because it's not its not something that people talk about. And it's certainly not something in all the interviews I've done and the women I've spoken to who have been through this. It's not something that I've come across. And it's something that's quite shameful, I think, to say. And quite honestly, the only reason why I'm saying it is because of the possibility that there might be someone else out there who listens to this and who felt the same way. And I don't think, given the time and distance that I've had now, it's not that I didn't love my daughter. I do. I think part of it was that I was still in shock and my body my brain had kind of taken over and was trying to protect me from this horrible terrible thing that had happened to us and I think part of it was the fact that I had not slept and I had not eaten anything and I was so weak that I could barely sit up in bed um I remember looking down at her and you know she wasn't beautiful she was a 26-week baby, and I think from what I've inferred, you know, she perhaps looked more deteriorated, I guess is the word. It's a very clinical word, than other babies at that stage. She looked like a broken little bird that had fallen from the nest. And I remember after... Later on that day, after various things had happened, a consultant coming in to see us finally when she got around to us on her rounds. And something she said struck with me and will always, you know, stick with me. She said that she looked as if Sky had been dead for weeks. And that was how she described my baby. So that perhaps give you gives you a bit of indication, maybe, of you know, of her condition. And I knew she hadn't been dead for weeks because I'd had that 25-week midwife appointment and heard her heartbeat and, you know, that was evidence. (laughs) You know, I could have imagined the kicks after that. I could have imagined the movements, but, you know, there was someone else there who heard her heart beating. So that was not the case. But it was quite hard. It It was really hard that the baby I'd imagined, and I thought I'd prepared myself. I knew that stillborn babies didn't always look like you might imagine a baby to look. And I thought I prepared myself for that, but I hadn't. I thought, what am I supposed to do with her? Because normally when you give birth to a baby, you know, you have skin to skin contact. You, you know, you're waiting to see if they show signs of feeding. You're looking at their movements, um, you know, and how they're wiggling around and whether they're, you know, making any play for your nipple. And a dead baby doesn't do that. And no one even suggested skin to skin contact, you know, or, you know, it didn't even cross my mind. And I honestly, I just, I wasn't sure what to do with her. And as it turned out, um, I had some problems with my placenta and I was still obviously, you know, birth doesn't end when the baby comes out, unfortunately. And I ended up having to go into theatre to have that removed manually and I think again when I look back and I have to kind of maybe forgive myself a bit more now because I went into that theatre and I could barely sit upright I was shaking and I could barely sit upright for long enough for the anaesthetist to put the spinal injection in I was just so weak and overwhelmed by everything and we stayed in the hospital for the rest of that day My parents came in to visit. 
I I didn't want them to see Sky as she was. So we covered her up in her, she was in a cold cot. And I'm not sure whether I regret that or not, because I still think that I wanted them to have this vision in their minds of the granddaughter they wanted. But another part of me wishes that that maybe they'd been a bit firmer about wanting to see her and hold her even, because perhaps that would have validated that it was okay to do that. And I think it's a very odd thing. And and I think it comes down to who you are as a person, your personality. And I have always been a rule follower. And I've always looked to other people for guidance as to what we should do, or what I should do in situations or how I should respond. And I think this was a situation which was completely unknown to me. And I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know what I could do with my baby, what I should do. And I think what would have been really useful for me would have been if someone had sat down with us before before they'd even given me the, the medicine to start the induction and talked through things like, this is what your baby might look like. This is how you might feel about things. This is what you can do with her. You might want to make some memories. We have these facilities available. If you don't want to do it, then someone else can do it for you. So you still have those memories. These are the things you might want to think about doing. And always giving us the option, never you know, saying this is a right way or a wrong way, but just preparing us in some way for what we were about to go through an experience while knowing that actually what we did and didn't do during that time and in the the short time we had with Sky might stick with us forever as, you know, both happy memories and perhaps a bit of sadness or regret. I feel like that is perhaps one of the greatest gifts that a health professional could give to a bereaved parent in that situation. And the bereavement wife came to see us and she took Sky away to do some footprints and handprints and take some photos. And I never even questioned whether we could do that ourselves. We had brought a camera into the hospital with us, like a proper camera, you know. I never asked anyone to take a photo of us as a family and looking back now and knowing what I do now obviously the benefit of hindsight is a wonderful thing I really wish that I had been strong enough or perhaps confident in myself to have done that and I've spoken to a few people about you know the amazing training that Beyond B do with midwives and I think this is the sort of thing that it's really important to talk about because not all parents not all parents are able or willing to advocate for what they want or even know what they want in that situation because we are still in shock. There's one other aspect relating to that that I want to mention briefly and it is one image. As I said at the beginning all the midwives who we came across who you know supported us through Sky's birth and afterwards were lovely they were supportive they were nice they were professional but there was one moment which i didn't think anyone else noticed and it was when i was coming back from the theater to my room and i was being wheeled back in the bed and the midwife was wheeling Sky along in her cold cot behind, bringing her back into the room. And she paused and was talking to, I think, another of the nurses or midwives from the theatre. And they looked down at the cot and then they looked at each other. And I will never, until the day I die, forget the looks on their faces. 
and they didn't know that I saw them um, because why would they? And it was only, gosh, a split second, a microsecond. But that image still haunts me today. And I don't know what they were thinking. So I only have my interpretation of it, which I am probably being harsh to them and could be completely wrong. But the look on their faces was a mixture of pity and disgust. Not, Not disgust that my baby had died, but just at how she looked. And I guess the reason I share that is not... It's not to, you know, criticise those nurses, those midwives at all. You know, they did an amazing job. They do an amazing job every day. But it's perhaps just as a reminder that you never know when someone is watching you. And you never know just what, what flick of an expression, what small detail might stay with someone. And so we got to the end of that first day. This was still the same day that Sky was born. And... We had to stay in another night. We said goodbye to Skye and she went off to be taken off for her post-mortem. And we ended up staying in another night in the hospital and we got moved to the bereavement suite, which was an amazing, amazing room. Um, I'm so grateful that hospitals have these rooms and that other parents have been able to use them. Um, because I think, you know, it just makes such a difference to your overall experience, both being isolated from other wards and having this self-contained facility, which, you know, Sam actually managed to get some sleep that night because he had a kind of pull-out sofa bed rather than trying to get a bit of kip on a birthing mat, which had been his bed the night before. Um, So we ended up staying in that night, and I guess we could have asked to have had Sky back with us again, but we didn't. And again, that's always something I think of. Should I have held her more? Should we have spent more time with her? But again, we didn't know what to do. And I think now we do know what we could have done, what we might want to do, those memories which we would have wanted to make and didn't. But it's one of those things you perhaps learn after the event. So that's the story of our little girl, and how she came into the world. And it's a hard story for me to tell, as all these stories are. But I hope that perhaps someone listening to it can relate to elements of that, and it helps you feel less alone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com.